how we see our world and what we see in our world and and the way we interpret our world, all those things are a matter of what's going on within us. Hello, yogis, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of Dharma Talk. I'm your host, Henry Winslow, and this is episode number 39. I'm reporting in from California. I just got back to the United States after a very quick trip to China. Uh, I was there competing in the International Yoga Sport Federation Championships, and I'm happy to say that I came back with the gold for USA. And I'm not saying that to brag, but more to express my appreciation for all of you that helped me get there. Um, There are lots of different ways that you might have supported me by listening to this show. That's one of them. Also, a number of you donated to my travel fund. And honestly, I have to say, I would not have been able to go if it weren't for your support. So if you came to the gratitude practice class in Lighthouse or you donated online, thank you so much. Um, There's really a happy ending at the end of it. So I'm just so grateful for you. Thank you. And along that same note, today I want to say thank you, special thank you to Celie Olafsson for making a donation to support Dharma Talk. I'm also very grateful for that. And if anyone ever wants to make a donation to keep this podcast up and running, you can do that at http colon slash slash dharmatalk.show. Okay. Now, about today's episode. Today, my guest is a medical doctor of Qigong and traditional Chinese medicine. Pretty cool. We have not had anyone like that on the show so far. His name is Dr. Word Smith. And Word is actually part of the Science of Self uh, yoga teacher trainings, along with Rose Aaron Vaughn, who I interviewed on episode number three, and Yoshio Hama, who was episode number 34. So if you haven't heard those, check back and you can get the full picture of what um, sorts of expertise these people bring to the table. Now in this conversation with Word, we talk about why at a very practical level, helping others is the key to your happiness. We also talk about how to change your life circumstances by working from the inside out. Word shares a simple and universal four-step path to creating any change or result that you desire. That's a really cool part. Don't miss that part of the interview. And lastly, he leaves us with one powerful Chinese herb that all yogis can benefit from, and you can find it at your local supermarket. Also, you can hear about um, some other ways that you can learn from Word about traditional Chinese medicine if you're interested in doing that. So please stay tuned through these announcements, and we'll dive into this interview with Dr. Word Smith. California friends, I am headed your way and very excited to be teaching a backbending workshop at YogaWorks Costa Mesa on Sunday, December 9th. That's Orange County, Southern California. If you can't come, send me a message. Maybe we can meet up for a class or something. For my friends here in New York, I've got a workshop at the end of January at Three Jewels. So details for all my events upcoming and to be planned are at henrywins.com events. Go there and sign up. At Lighthouse Yoga School in Brooklyn, New York, we are currently enrolling our next 200-hour teacher training for January 2019. So yoga teachers looking to level up your teaching, aspiring yoga teachers who want to do your first training, or yoga students who just want to take their practice a little bit deeper. You can get more information about that also at henrywins.com slash events. And if you apply now using my referral code, henrywins, you'll save $100 on your tuition. There's no fee to apply. So go ahead, put your application in, drop the referral code and lock in $100 off. What's your purpose? What's your vision? What mark will you leave on this planet long after you're gone? I'm Henry Winslow, and you're listening to Dharma Talk, the only podcast where I interview inspirational yogis on how they're changing the world in their own unique ways. 
Whether you're still searching for your purpose or already walking the path, I hope these stories get you excited to live your dharma. Hello, Dharma Talk community, and welcome back to another episode. Today, I've got my friend, Dr. Word Smith, on the line. Word is a doctor of medical Qigong and has been studying Eastern arts for over 20 years. He is a nomadic yogi roaming the globe, studying language, medicine, philosophy, and the movement practices said to grant liberation in this life. Currently, he teaches domestically and internationally in order to help all living beings. Word, how are you today? Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, Henry. I feel amazing and uh, I'm doing really well. You know, we were just talking before uh, turning on the recording and I know that you're out doing some education yourself with your teacher. I think that's really cool and important for all teachers and and service people out there to continue your education. Um, So awesome props to you for that and thank you for taking the time out of that out of that schedule to to share a little bit with with our audience here Um, we always start we always start with the same opening question so i want to give you a chance to answer that what does the word dharma mean to you and what is your dharma as you understand it today um yeah that's an amazing question i think one um people should be aware of as they move through their day I mean, the word dharma, um, so I'm a language nerd and a Sanskrit um, scholar. And so the actual word dharma um, comes from a a root dir, which means like to support something. And since Sanskrit is uh, in the same um, language family group as English and a a much older uh, member of that family group, a lot of Sanskrit words come in um, to English and uh, so dir um, becomes the word true in English. Um, it becomes the word tree in English. It also becomes the word druid, um, which is a combination of dir and uh, vid, which is like someone who sees the truth. So, I mean, dharma, the word in Sanskrit classically has about 12 definitions. But generally people use the word to mean like, what is like your code of conduct? What is your truth? Something like that. And that's the way it was used in like the Bhagavad Gita, I believe. Um, I study a lot of um, Buddhist practices. And sometimes people just call like the words of the Buddha, like the Dharma or uh, Buddha Dharma. But really the way that the Buddha used it and my teacher to, to some degree, a Dharma means like that which supports you. That's what dir means, like that which supports you or holds you back. So supports you from doing, it supports you in doing the things that you'd like to do and holds you back from doing the things that um, don't serve you. Um, and basically, I mean, that's what dharma means to me. It means like the truth or the teachings or the things that support me in my daily life or help me to steer clear of the things that will hurt me, something like that. Yeah, and well, thank you for the the little lesson there because it's always nice to hear from someone who has the classical training around these concepts that we discuss often. Um, so thank you for that. Mm-hmm. And the point of it that I really want to pull out and maybe probe a little bit more on is the mm-hmm. kind of con- the converse side, the negative side of that definition. It's the things that you mm-hmm. keep you from doing what you should not be doing. I think it's very easy to focus on on the positive side, but ignoring the negatives can stand in your way as well. Um, can you bring us a little mm-hmm. bit more onto the personal note for you with how that relates to what you're teaching and what you're spreading? Yeah, I'd love to because it, it's it's so crucial, and I, I really wish that um, everyone at least had an opportunity to hear these teachings so they could decide whether or not um, they work for them and. Uh, yeah, I mean, so much of our lives, I mean, every step we take every day is a decision um, of like how to act. Um, and all these different traditions, you know, be it Christianity, Hinduism, Buddhism, you know, Jainism, Taoism, and so on and so forth, they all have like a code of conduct. And the idea of a code of conduct, I think in the West, people think of a code of conduct like just like a bunch of empty rules that make life boring or something like that. Um, Or just like a bunch of arbitrary rules like set down from like, you know, priests 
or on clergy or some higher power to like restrict what you do for no real good reason. And instead, I mean, for me, all these teachings um, really feed into how I treat people, how I act during the day, you know, what activities I spend my life doing. Um, and those activities that I spend my life doing after a time, you know, become my life, you know, in a sense, or become my lifetime. And it's really important to, for me to see myself living a life that, you know, has a lot of value, not only to myself, but that I also have has value for others as well. Mm-hmm. So what does, what does your personal practice look like? Because I know that it happens to contain some exercises and work that you do internally, but there's also a major service mm-hmm. component for you, knowing you from you know, working with you and, and Aaron and learning a mm-hmm. bit about the Chinese medicine from you. Um, yeah, that's a great question. Um, yeah, I've been practicing for like consciously for about uh, 20 years now. And my practice has evolved over that time in quite a few different ways. But the main component is the service work. Or even if, even say, because a lot of what I do is studying, you know, I do a lot of movement practices um, like yoga or other, you know, more like East Asian yoga, like Taoist yoga, like Qigong, Tai Chi type, type activities, as well as. What, what people in the West would call like energy work, like doing like internal practices to move the prana or chi in my body for very specific um, reasons, you know, usually to feel better generally or to have more capacity to help people. Um, but yes, service work is the backbone of it all. Um, I mean, the basic understanding is like what you do multiplies and becomes what you see. And so if I see myself helping others, if I see myself you know, helping people to be happy and so on in the ways I see myself helping them, that in turn becomes how I see my life. You know, I see myself as happier. You know, if I gave, I'll see more money in my bank account, like really practical things like that. So it's, it's, it's really bare bones, the most practical things that help me feel happier and and help others. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's really core to the teachings of the Buddha, right? I mean, your thoughts um, are reflections of your reality and projections of your reality as well. Um, mm-hmm. I'd love to hear a little bit about your background story. Word, how did you come into this um, this path? And I know that you've you know you've really gone down the rabbit hole in so many different directions that mm-hmm. I'm sure a lot of us myself and, and our listeners can relate to um, getting interested and really pulled down. So where did that all start for you? And maybe take us through a twist or turn that pulled you in a new direction. Cool. Yeah, I'd love to. Um, yeah, I was, I was a smart kid growing up. Um, and even at a young age, I started to like notice things about the world that maybe uh, would be unusual for a kid um, and um, maybe even usual for some adults. And, uh, you know, my parents started to notice the things I was saying were pretty insightful for like a five-year-old. And, um, you know, I got put into like the quote gifted class, you know, um, at a young, like in first grade. And from there I was able to, you know, study some things, um, that maybe I wouldn't have gotten to study otherwise. And as well, my father was one of my um, earliest teachers, and he's a very ardent um, believer in having a lot of general knowledge about the world as a means to um, be able to understand and contextualize the greater world. And so that was my, my educational background through public school, um, which in a lot of ways I hated because um, my mind was very expansive, and I was I would get bored within minutes in certain classes with certain instructors just because I just it just was too slow for me um and so uh, around age 19 after my public schooling I went to university and during universities when I became a philosophy major um, studying eastern and western philosophy and I also joined the, the school taekwondo club which was very active at that time with my instructor Lawrence Narcissi 
at Temple University. And from there, things started to really open up for me. I started to have um, unusual experiences, um, which I couldn't share with, with almost anyone. Because when I would start to share them, they really would look very puzzled about what I was talking about. Later, I realized that these experiences are pretty common in East Asian um, or Central Asian, South Asian um, esoteric schools, you know, experiences involving like chi, um, you know, kind of extrasensory perceptions and stuff like that. And uh, after I finished my schooling and got my, my first on first degree black belt in Taekwondo, um, I decided to take the route of uh, studying yoga and qigong. And that's when things started to get really interesting for me. Um, I basically abandoned all other activities and just studied, you know, holistic nutrition, uh, yoga, qigong, tai chi, uh, capoeira, um, some other martial arts like bagua. And uh, yeah, my sensory perception started to really awaken beyond the limits of what is considered possible in a lot of um, kind of Western modern society. Um, such that it put me in a category where I had to find people um, like me. And I ended up moving to California and, yeah, studied um, massage and body work at the Hartwood Institute along with nutrition with some esteemed teachers there, including Paul Pitchford, author of Healing with Whole Foods. Yeah, and that led me into um, basically wanting to find more and more refined ways to help people um, with Chinese medicine, with internal martial arts, with yoga. And that's how I studied and got my doctorate in uh, Monterey, California with Sifu Jerry Allen Johnson. And after that, things really just exploded and people kind of all over just wanted me to teach them and learn from them because I had basically immersed myself um, up until this point, 20 years, um, in these things such that um, I could be a a world leader in these arts, especially from the different angles that I had, uh, um, I had studied them. Well, there's definitely something to be said for approaching similar topics from lots of different angles. I think that doing mm -hmm. that, that interdisciplinary approach really um, mm -hmm. lends a, a unique perspective that allows you to serve in a new way. Um, there's something mm -hmm. powerful about taking the traditional and revisiting it to create something new. So I definitely agree with you on that. That's very cool. Um, but to go back a little bit on your, on your story, mm -hmm. it's, it's hard mm -hmm. for me not to notice that you had a proclivity for sort of all things Eastern. Um, where do you think that came from? Do you, do you believe in, in past lives or is it something that you were introduced to from an early age? Where did that all come from? That's an amazing question. Um, I personally do believe in past lives. They're logical for me. They explain the, you know, talents, you know, that people come in with above and beyond, you know, the genetic chemical model. Um, yeah, I honestly do feel like I have been a practitioner in many past lives. Um, more recently, um, Chinese, um, because I've gravitated towards so many things, Chinese language, um, tai Chi Chuan, um, Bagua Zhang, um, massage, Chinese massage, Chinese medicine. I'm a Chinese herbalist. You know, I speak Mandarin um, a little and I speak some Cantonese. Um, and my job involves Chinese. So, yeah, I, you know, I personally do believe in past lives. They, to me, explain where the mind comes from um, into this life. So, yeah, I. Yeah, there's not much more explanation. I, I was not introduced to anything in this life outside of like something you get from like pop culture, you know, cartoons and you know, an, you know, anime and stuff like that. Yeah. So just one, right. just one day, I just was very interested in these things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You also mentioned um, kind of early on in your study of some of the energy movement practices, qigong, and and similar work that you started to notice sensory perception outside of what you considered to be the norm and maybe what others considered to be the norm. Mm -hmm. Talk more about that. What was the experience of that, especially when it was brand new? 
Hmm. Yeah, there was some experiences very young, um, age five, age nine, age 12. I had these experiences that I remember. Some of them were just insights. Like all of a sudden I just like, at five, I was like, wow, I'm conscious. And I just, that just dawned on me. Like I was like awake yeah. and aware. Um, at nine, I was just really start contemplating existence itself um, in certain ways. At 12, I started to have like what maybe people call like psychic experiences um, or like kind of premonitory um, experiences and just like a lot of deja vu and uh, kind of very powerful dream experiences. Like honestly things happening from my dream, but like kind of just dreams being kind of interwoven with my reality in a, in like a healthy way, in a way that the world is very vibrant and, and alive for me. Um, but then later on it became very consistent just being able to um, feel energy and see energy like auras and that sort of thing started to happen in my early twenties after I graduated from school, from university. And um, it was the most interesting to, to thing to me. I mean, I grew up on, you know, X-Men comic books and, you know, the Thundercats, you know, cartoons and that sort of thing. And, you know, I always, in the back of my mind, you know, those things were cartoons and comic books, but I always had this kind of seed of like, no, actually, those things are possible. And, you know, later as a young adult learning, like, suppose that we only learn, you only use like, I don't know, 2% of our mental capacity. I forget, the, I don't know the real numbers, but a very small amount. Um, really feeling like a lot of that could be taken up by, um, you know, limited, the limiting beliefs stopped us from using the rest of that capacity mm -hmm. so yeah just and and those things now have a lot of value you know qigong is becoming more popular um and there's huge amounts of our you know culture population that are, are very interested in qigong and yoga and these other activities um and uh yeah there's yeah. a whole field dedicated to these abilities mm -hmm. well you you said that you know we only use two percent or whatever the number is of our mental capacity, and mm -hmm. I think you know that's that's a really interesting question because we have science on the one hand usually it, like shown in juxtaposition to a, an understanding that's more spiritual, but the more you get acquainted to the science, the more you really understand that science is moving and changing in lots of ways that just point to the ambiguity of what we don't know. So even if you can say <laughs> that we use 2% of our brain matter, like does the brain matter even <laughs> really explain all the powers? And that's why I think right. it's really cool to study, you know, the cities and, and these supernatural <laughs> powers that, that are talked about in, in ancient practices. The other thing I kind of got from your, your story there is that mm -hmm. you followed a natural interest from a very early age and there was mm -hmm. no real promise of anything in return. It was just a natural curiosity and lo and behold, many years later, there is mm -hmm. demand for that knowledge. And you know, what I take away is that if you can follow your gut about what you want to spend your time and attention and curiosity on, it, it comes back. Like things have a way of working out, not in the sense necessarily like, oh, you're going to get paid for it or, or even have a, mm -hmm. an exchange of any kind, but there's a reason mm -hmm. why, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I honestly believe, you know, um, and some or what we would call maybe indigenous cultures um, have more of an emphasis on this as well. You know, we all come in with, you know, very specific talents and, um, you know, those talents unexplored are a huge waste. You know, it's like, I was talking to someone recently and I made some example, like, you know, imagine if like Picasso had been like a pediatrician or a dentist or something, you know, like um, these are all perfectly good, good jobs but for the wrong person at the wrong time or with someone with other hidden talents um it, it, it could be a huge waste of hum of their you know capacity and for humanity at, at large and right so i, I definitely i definitely encourage people to follow that gut on feeling you know i had to do a lot of um kind of rebellious act you know activities you know to be able 
to do what I wanted to do because, you know, you know, as a, in public school, you know, with 30 people in a class or what have you, you know, it's, it's difficult to give an individualized education to each student in that sense. Um, and so, yeah, I just had to like not do my schoolwork a lot of times and just kind of do my thing. And yeah, it did work out in the sense of, um, in, all, in both senses of just in my general happiness and what I'm able to give as well as monetarily, you know, I do actually do get paid for these things now, which is amazing and um, you know, very fun, fruitful. So yeah, I agree. Can you take us to a moment maybe along your journey or your path where you hit some resistance? Because I'm sure it hasn't been straight and narrow the whole way. Where, where was there a time where you hit conflict and, and then what did you do um, internally or externally to get through that? Well, um, yeah, I mean, I hit conflicts every day, to be honest. Um, it's just to the degree of which, you know, overall, I dedicated myself to my path um, and did a long time ago, such that I, I, I refused to to get off of it and uh, and have been through enough obstacles where I'm like, I recognize that they can be overcome and have seen the fruits of my labors such that um, I'm encouraged to continue, but specific examples, oh my God, there's so many. I mean, I didn't have nothing but $6 in my pocket for years, you know, like literally or less for many years. I would get money, we just have to go right to food and bills. And um, I went through medical Qigong school on my own. You know, I paid for it almost all on my own. I did receive assistance from friends and family from time to time when I had to. But I mean, I've had to hitchhike hundreds of miles to get to class and um, to do everything. Um, what, what would I do internally and externally? I mean, internally, it, it, in my view, and it, this is arguable and not necessarily based on um, classical texts, but some of it is, in my view, how we see our world, and this could be highly controversial for some people, how we see our world and what we see in our world and, um, and how and the way we interpret our world, all those things are a matter of what's going on within us. And if we really hit certain blocks, I found that the most efficacious way to change those things is to find those thoughts, those beliefs, even the feelings and sensations, and maybe even the physical you know, like the actual like physical obstructions, you know, which is behind a lot of the asana practice with yoga um, in our body such that to change what's happening on the outside. And I've done this work for a long time, maybe 19 years. And it, it's super, it's, it works for me. And, and, and when I see what's going on on the outside of my world, I see the blocks that need to still get resolved. And, and on the outside, I mean, the number one thing is, is you reap what you sow. Um, so giving someone what you want is the best way to get what you want. Um, you know, I've done a lot of hitchhiking just because I personally don't want to own a car. There's been times when I've had cars or borrowed cars. And at those times, if I see someone on the side of the road, I pick them up, you know, I even go out of my way to pick people up. Um, not that that activity is for everyone. Um, I live in rural places where hitchhiking is actually encouraged, even for the kids. Um, but yeah, no, it's just even simple things like that. And I, I always find myself with a ride and I always people let me use their cars and um, I always get where I need to go and I, I travel quite a bit. So yeah, internally, yeah, and externally, you have to really check in with yourself and see like what you've done to create the, where you're at and what you need to do to uh, create what you what you want. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's great advice. What goes around comes around, and the more you give, the more you get. Really, mm -hmm. basically. Mm -hmm. 
So uh, Word, would you mind doing maybe a little bit of teaching for our audience of, of mostly <laughs> practitioners, um, maybe about some of the ways that they could use traditional herbs, or maybe, I don't know, maybe there's something else that you think that um, our listeners could benefit from in the way of your expertise in Chinese medicine. Yeah, you know, I, I kind of want to talk about the backbone of all these teachings. Um, and we can talk from the yoga perspective. So the main book of yoga is the Yoga Sutras um, by um, Master Patanjali. And Patanjali um, was an amazing um, historical character. We still have, um, he's the author, he's basically the author of, what is all yoga philosophy and he also i mean there's other sources as well like the vedas but he's also the father of indian classical dance and he wrote treatises on medicine so he was um a renaissance man before the renaissance and in his text yoga sutras he writes um in the second verse uh yoga Chitti Varti Narodaha. And Yogas means yoga. It's just a form of the word yoga. Um, Chitta means like mind. And Varti means like to turn around. And Narodaha means to stop. And that's the definition of yoga in uh, Master Patanjali's view. And if we understand that one verse, we basically can do anything we want in our lives. And if we don't understand that verse, we're basically at the whim of the fates or uh, luck or, um, you know, God, capital G. And so um, the basic meaning of that verse is that yoga is stopping how the mind flips everything backwards. Um, and that means... If, if you want to be a yogi or practice yoga, the first thing you have to do is understand that our world is coming from us, not at us. And uh, my teacher likes to use this example called the pen, pen thing. Um, it's a little easier visually, but we can do it audio too. And he holds up a pen and he asks a room of people, he says, what is this? And everyone's like, yeah, it's a pen. Um, and he says, you know, if a dog came in the room right now and I waved it in front of that dog, what would the dog treat this as? What would it be to the dog? And Go everyone's fetch. like, oh, yeah. yeah, exactly. Something to play with, precisely. Or, you know, so we just say like a chew toy, something to chew on. Um, so, so Henry, which one, which one is it? Is it a pen or is it a chew toy? It's both. Depends on who's looking. Right. Exactly. Okay. So if we leave the pen on a table and we take the puppy, the dog for a walk, and we, at the time when we leave the room and there's no one there to witness it, what is that item at that time? That's a good question. Yeah. It, it, it's the operative question. It's like the question, you know, and around the world, when my teacher gives this example, um, people just shrug or they're like nothing, you know, um, and that's basically all you can say because you, cause you can't say. Um, but if the dog comes back in the room, what does the item become at that time? It goes back to being the, the chew toy. Exactly. And if, Henry walks back in the room, it becomes a... A writing utensil. Right, and writing utensil. So the understanding would be then that the thing it is is not dependent on the item, but it's dependent on the perceiver, correct? Right. Right, so in that sense, at least, the things we see in our world are coming from us, not at us. Yeah, I right? follow. Right. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's the basic. And then there's the there's a leap in here that the yogis talk about, you know, um, 
that the Buddha spoke about and other traditions. I mean, Jesus spoke about it as well. And I think, I think these principles are universal and that it has nothing to do with the person who said it necessarily. They just understood it and they're putting it forward. But it's like any, any like if someone teaches you about gravity, you know, you don't necessarily, doesn't necessarily mean gravity is exclusive to their teachings. It's just that they're teaching you the principle. So what the yogis and the Buddha and Jesus basically said, as well as others, is that what we do becomes how we see things. So the fact that we gave people pens in the past, that we help people learn higher things, um, allows us to have the type of mind that sees it as a pen. Because you can be a human and not necessarily be able to cognize certain things. You could have like Alzheimer's or you could have certain forms of autism or, you know, suffer from certain kinds of brain damage or what have you, um, that you could still see the same parts and still not be able to put it together as a pen, right? Right. So, so the understanding there is that in your mind is a cause, we call it a seed that then ripens and becomes like, honestly, if you meditate a lot, you can see this whole process happen directly. And that's why there's such an emphasis on meditation in all these traditions, um, because you want to be able to see this directly. Um, you can see the process of you actually um, placing an image in your mind that comes from how you treated others onto objects that allows you to put the parts of that object together as a specific thing, which then you can use validly as that thing. Like it's validly a pen to you, it's validly a true choice of the dog, and so on and so forth. It, and I mean, well, that's the backbone. Here's a curveball for you. Go ahead. What do, what do, <laughs> what do we do if, um, if we realize that we've placed a meaning or value on something that we want to course correct away from because we see that it's destructive. That's an amazing question. And that, and that shows it, the, this is the logical question, you know, uh, any like, you know, thinking person wants to ask, they're like, okay, if that's true, then what do I do with it? How can I use it? Um, and that's a huge subject in the yoga sutras. And, it's a huge subject in Chinese philosophy. I mean, the book, the Tao Te Ching, um, which basically has two subjects, the Tao, which is a description of exactly what I just said in different, you know, verses, and the, which is, um, which means virtue, can be translated as virtue, which basically means how do you then act if that is, if that is the case? Okay, I'll teach you exactly how to act. I mean, basically what the yogi said is that you should restrict yourself from certain activities and then you should not restrict yourself from certain activities. And they call those yamas and niyamas, right? Yamas, yep. Yama literally means that which you restrict yourself from. It comes from a root, which means the reins of a horse. And niyama means not restrict. So the things that you should do or like really uh, engage in those activities. Exercise or observe. Um, sure. Yeah, the things you should observe precisely. Um, but the basic, I, the root of all of those teachings is, is that what you do is going to be what you become and increase your capacity. So um, there's a teaching called the four steps. And, and this is to answer your question directly. If you do the four steps, you can create anything you want in your world and see it validly as such. So step one is decide what you want. So if you're trying to course correct for you have a habit of drinking too much coffee, right? Which is something uh, I think a lot of people might deal with or cigarettes or some kind of habit that they don't like. Um, so you're like, okay, I no longer want to be addicted to blank. So the thing to do then is- Chocolate. Act, yeah, so chocolate, perfect. So, <laughs> you, so step one, so step one. You, you make a one line sentence. I no longer want to be addicted to chocolate. Okay. Step two. Okay. This is the crucial part. You have to 
find somebody else in the world who needs or wants the same thing. It doesn't have to be exact, exact. It has to be at least along the same line. So, so they want to, you know, maybe they're an alcoholic and they need support in some in alcoholism, or they're they're drug addicted, or um, or something more minor like like coffee or or cigarettes or or chocolate or what have you. It doesn't matter. And so step two is you find them. Step three is you somehow support them in getting off of that thing. So you see yourself giving them the thing that you want. Because the interesting part of cognition and, um, you know, recognition and perception is that there's no real explanation for the fact that we're seeing a world at all. And one, you know, some people, one day they're completely addicted. Like my father, actually, he, he smoked cigarettes for a, a time. I don't know how long, maybe 10 years or something. One day he was like, I, I'm, this is my last cigarette. And his friends kind of laughed at him. He put his cigarette out in like 1978 or something. That was it. Never smoked again. Other people might struggle with getting off cigarettes for decades. You know, so what is it really? you know, really in the mind that allows somebody to be able to, to do anything or witness any event. So we say it's step three. You seeing yourself helping somebody else is what creates that perception for yourself in the future. Hmm. And then step four, maybe the most important part, and for some reason it's really hard for people, um, and that is what we call uh, rejoicing. In Tibetan, it's tartuk. And tartuk basically means the thing you do after you've done the action. And after you did the action, you want to think two things to yourself. You want to think, I did the very thing that will get me what I want, period. Just like if you're a, if you're a farmer and you planted a seed in the ground and you're taking care of those seeds, you're going to think, in, at harvest time, I'm going to have these plants you know, based upon the fact that I did the actions. And step two is that you think to yourself, I am no longer seeing my world as coming at me either randomly or from fate or luck or, or God or the gods. I'm instead taking responsibility for my world and using a new system that, that's logical that says, you know, if I can see there's a pen, dog sees a chew toy, therefore I, my world's coming from me, and therefore um, this makes sense. And the, the best time to do that is at night before you go to bed. Why? Because at, when we go to sleep, we experience a state change of consciousness that's very powerful. And if, if you've ever had a girlfriend or a wife, um, we know that like you don't want to go to bed angry because in the morning, you wake up angry or um, it tends to allow things to go on longer. Same thing with this. If you at night think about what you did and think about is it using a new system, then you will experience the results much faster because it will work for all that time that you're sleeping in your subconscious. That's the basics. Very cool. So the four steps. Mm -hmm. First, yes, four steps. Acknowledge, acknowledge, mm -hmm. acknowledge what it is that you want to change. Number yes, two, I, yeah. Mm -hmm. Number two, find someone else who has a similar or identical problem. Number three, mm -hmm. help them solve it. And number four, mm -hmm. hardest one, rejoice and celebrate having <laughs> change that causes the outcome that you want. And you know that's that's really cool. Um, First of mm -hmm. all, four steps, a lot easier than the 12. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it kind of, it turns that old expression, don't, um, don't count your chickens before they hatch kind of on its head, right? But I can totally see why, you know, if you can put yourself in the mindset of feeling gratitude and feeling excitement about what you want, the experience that you want, then that's going to manifest that exact outcome to come into your life. And um, great tip on doing it before bed. Yes, definitely don't want to be stewing and marinating on anger 
all um, in your subconscious. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, yeah. Word, um, can you tell us a little bit about what you're um, teaching soon in New York? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, so, I have um, joined um, Science Itself. I've been teaching with them for um, a couple years now. Um, it's an organization that teaches um, yoga teacher trainings as well as educate the people on uh, Chinese medicine. And uh, we're really dedicated to putting these teachings into the hands of, you know, the quote, common person so that, you know, you know, lay people, you don't have to necessarily, you know, have a doctorate or go to, you know, four or five years of school to have these basic tools that can help you and your family. So I've been tasked with teaching an acupressure program in uh, Manhattan. We're still deciding on where the space is going to be, but starting this May, I believe May 20th is the first day um, we, in 2019, we will be teaching acupressure program, um, uh, acupressure one, acupressure two, and that's just a, a type of massage where you, you know, press certain points on people's body to help them heal faster or clear or their own organs. Body. Yeah, exactly. Or in your own body, like self acupressure. And then also I'll be teaching a herbal program um in new york at the same location with science itself as well as the three jewels new york um for basically lay people um chinese herbal medicine it's just let me teach you 10 formulas that can help you and like for 10 basic things like insomnia the common cold things like that as well as five formulas to strengthen the body in really specific ways like have more like breathing capacity, um, stronger muscles, more energy through the day without having to use like, you know, stimulants um, and stuff like that. So yeah, it's going to be an amazing program. And we're really excited about it. We um, anticipate that it's going to be full. I think we have like 25, maybe 30 spots available. And uh, yeah, science of self, um, dot com or dot org. <laughs> Look around for Rose Aaron. We'll Vaughn. figure it out and put it on the show notes for the podcast. So yeah. don't worry about getting the URL right. <laughs> Thank you so much. I, I forget it right now. Um, yeah, so, so yeah, that, that's the basic program. Mm -hmm. Totally. Yeah, that's going to be an awesome program. You know, this is actually where Word and I met was at the one of these acupressure intensives with Rose Aaron Vaughn. Um, and he dropped all the knowledge and I couldn't help but invite him on the podcast. So that's how we got connected. <laughs> Um, can you leave our listeners maybe with one short formula or even one herb that they might want to explore um, associated with a certain benefit or treatment? Sure. Um, hmm. That's a great question. I have found overall one of the best herbs for Americans, as I've, if I've experienced Americans, is this wonderful herb called burdock. Um, it's, it's also used in Chinese medicine. It's used in, uh, Japanese cooking as well. And it's, it's right on the edge in, in China, they have a saying, um, our herbs food or food herbs. And this, this herb is right on the edge. I and mean, the Japanese call it gobo and they use it like a vegetable. It's like a, they use it like carrots or something. I've eaten it raw. I've made a tea of the fresh herb. I've made plenty of tea of the dry herb. It's a plant that grows all over North America. Um, it can be found wild. You know, be careful, you know, picking it. Just make sure you know the herb and that it's not contaminated by any pesticides or something um, if you decide to pick it. But it's a great herb. It's amazing for um, just general body strengthening, um, general body health. It, it really benefits the liver. It benefits the kidneys. Um, it's in a famous formula called Essiac, which is used for certain kinds of cancer, especially colon cancer. Um, but yeah, burdock, if I was going to pick one herb off the top of my head, amazing, amazing herb, amazing tonic, um, meaning something that helps you strengthen your body um, over, all around. Mm -hmm. And you can pick that awesome. up in like probably Whole, Whole Foods, your local health food store. You know, definitely you can order it online from 
mountain yeah, reserves that, or that's one that's not so obscure that you have to go to a chinatown shop you can get that just at a supermarket no, probably yeah 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 you, you can probably get it some kind of supermarket or just ask around call around okay well i think now is as good a time as any to move on to the final section of the interview this is how i close mm-hmm. off all these all these talks uh it's called the prana round but maybe for today okay. just for you we'll call it the chi round um i'm gonna ask you <laughs> six rapid fire questions and ask you to answer minimum one word maximum one sentence make sense okay yep got it okay in one word why do you practice yoga enlightenment what is your favorite yoga pose and why shavasana you can hold it the longest Nice. Okay. What's the single best cue or piece of advice that you've ever received from a teacher? The world's coming from me, not at me. Help people. Recommend one book, modern or ancient, for our audience. You already mentioned the Tao Te Ching, if you want to say that again, or you can pick another one. Tao Te Ching by Stephen Mitchell is nice. Um, for lay audience, I would say uh, the Diamond Cutter um, book by Geshe Michael Roach. Um, highly, highly, highly recommend it. Internalize it. Use it daily. There's a, it's also an audio book um, if, you, if you prefer audio. Great. Okay. Is yoga for everyone? Everyone has to lay down at some point, so yes. At least Shavasana. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Last question. How can our audience get in touch with you and how can we support you in your Dharma? Thank you. Um, I, I'm on Instagram, uh, Dr. Wordsmith Wisdom. I'm on Facebook as Wordsmith and uh, looking to have an upcoming website, um, Dr. Wordsmith Wisdom com as well. And yeah, um, being in contact with me through Facebook or Instagram um, or the upcoming website um, to help me help others. Um, the more support I receive um, in my projects, which range from um, yoga, Chinese medicine, to things like permaculture and sustainable technologies, um, the more I can help others. So please, please support. Well, thank you so much, doctor, for coming on the show today. I really appreciate you um, crystallizing so many different lineage and years of teaching into some digestible nuggets for our audience. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. You're very welcome, Henry. Thank you so much. Namaste. If you got something out of this episode, if you like Dharma Talk and want to keep it going, please do me a huge favor and subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. I know it's not the most convenient thing to do, but it makes all the difference in getting the show out there and more visible to other people who can benefit from it. And hey, if you've got feedback or ideas or you want to get in touch with me, you can do that on Instagram at Henry Wins. Otherwise, I'll talk to you next week. And until then, keep living your dharma.